Genesis chapter 2. Now, the book of Genesis, of course, uh, as we would gather from the name, it, uh, uh, the name of Genesis, it uh, uh, comes from the, uh, the same root word as that we would get genetics and genes and so on from. And it deals with the origins or the beginnings. Chapter 1 deals with the creation of God. Chapter 2 then deals with the origins of God's interaction with man and how that we read in those uh, uh, early parts of uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2 there, how that man became a living soul. And uh, uh, we're going to pick up the story here in verse 8 as we read that God is going to establish or was in the process here of establishing a place where this living soul would be able to live with the Lord. And we read in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there are, it talks there about a number of trees that were, were in this garden as we would imagine, that uh, uh, obviously a pleasant place to be and so on there, but there are two particular trees that get a mention here. The first one that is mentioned is the tree of life, which we, as we know, as we look through the scriptures and we follow the story through to even right to the book of Revelation there, is an eternal tree. It's giving and sustaining life. It's representative of the blessing of God and even of Christ himself, as we'll see perhaps a little later on there. And the second tree that's spoken of here is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not talking here just about a head knowledge, that if you partake of this fruit of this tree, it's not just a a knowledge there, but rather a a discerning and understanding like a personal knowledge of uh, 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 the, the, of uh, good and evil, of uh, uh, the realm that uh, the human uh, form was really not to be a partaker of. In fact, we read, uh, as we know the story there, that Adam was told not to be a partaker of that tree. Why? Because it was beyond him to be able to handle such knowledge, to, to be able to handle the difference uh, of good and evil and, uh, and, and to, to be exposed uh, to such things. Because with that knowledge comes consequences, comes results. And we know the consequences of the knowledge of good and evil as Adam partook of that tree there, such things flooded into his life uh, and into the world generally there, such things as guilt and condemnation and punishment and disappointment and despair and even the grave, even death itself, uh, eventually there. And so the Lord uh, uh, warned Adam not to be a partaker of that tree. And down in verse uh, 25 we read there, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. The word naked there, the Hebrew word is arom, which means to have a childlike innocence. They were innocent before the Lord. As a child is innocent, is uh, you know, uh, uh, just uh, completely open there. And maybe this nakedness that is spoken of here is not just about an absence of clothing, but they were open and exposed before God. They, they didn't have to hide. 
They didn't have sin to, to, to cover up and so on there. And the Bible, uh, as we read those last two wo- or three words there, they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed as they walked and talked, we read there, in the garden with the Lord. Now the next chapter, we read in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not uh, uh, eat of uh, every tree in the garden, and so on and so on. We know the story there of how the the devil got in their ear. And uh, the word that's used here for subtle in verse 1 there that we just read there, the serpent was more subtle than any beast. Uh, As we we considered the word naked meant arom, it was uh, the Hebrew word arom, the word subtle there is aram. It comes from the same root word there, but it's a different word. It means to be subtle or to have an outward childlike innocence. So the one word meant to be innocent, and the other word that we just read there in verse 1 of chapter 3, to look like you're innocent, to have an outward appearance of innocence. But underneath, there's subtleness, there's guile, there's craftiness, there's deceit. And uh, and we know that uh, uh, there's cynicism and so on there and and, uh, and and a desire to cause hurt amongst people there. Of course, that's what uh, uh, the devil was all about here at this time. And down in verse 8 there, we know that they took of the tree and so on there and uh, the eyes of them in verse 7 were both opened and they knew that they were naked and so on there. And verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife, uh, hid themselves, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. They didn't have to hide before. Now they were destined to hide from God. They were destined to, to run away from God, to cower in His presence for the rest of their existence. And all of a sudden, not only was it uh, apparent to them of what had happened at this time here. But all of a sudden, an urgent situation arose. Something had to be done here about the situation in the garden now uh, and uh, had to be attended uh, uh, to here. In verse 22, we read there what that was. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Now, it, in the, there's some thought there that this verse is almost like after it says, and live forever, it should be dot, 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 dot. You know, the, the, the Lord is saying, this is un, unimaginable. This is unthinkable that such a thing would happen. And now take also, we will take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Oh, where's this going? Where's this going to lead? So this is what he did here. In verse uh, uh, 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth uh, from the Garden of Eden, uh, sorry, we uh, where do we get to there? To live forever. Therefore the uh, uh, the Lord God, yeah, in verse 23, sent him forth uh, from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep or to protect the way of the tree of life. A flaming sword to protect the tree of life from natural carnal man from their sinful state, from their state of shame, to protect the, the righteousness of God, to protect the purity of God. It had to be protected from mankind now. 
Now, as I was uh, having a look at a few thoughts along this line there, I thought just uh, uh, for something to do, I'd look up the word purity in a dictionary uh, because we're thinking about the pure nature of God here and how it couldn't be compromised. And this is what it came up with in this uh, um, uh, online dictionary for the word purity. It said, virtue, virtuousness, lack of corruption, morality, goodness, righteousness, rectitude, saintliness, piety, honour, honesty, integrity, uprightness, decency, worthiness, <gasps> nobility of soul and spirit, eth- ethicality, blamelessness, guiltlessness, innocence, chastity, sinlessness, stainlessness, spotlessness, irreproachablenessness, <laughs> immaculateness, impeccability, and the list goes on. Everything that's good, the nature of God, the nature of the tree of life is all of those things. And mankind had to be kept away from that. Or otherwise all of that would have been com- uh, compromised in some way there. And so another uh, concept is being introduced to us here in the book of Genesis, way back in the beginning here. That's one of separation between God and man. How that there was no place where these could dwell together as it were. There was a separation there. We know, uh, we read in the book of Isaiah, that your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your iniquities have made that separation, this chasm between you and your God. Now later on, uh, uh, we know uh, as we read through the the Old Testament uh, that a building was made where they could worship the Lord. Firstly, the tabernacle, and then, of course, later on, the temple. But even there, there was a veil. And we read of the veil that the veil shall divide. It would divide between God and man. And so all of this was destined to continue. Man would never be able to feast at the tree of life. It would always be on be beyond his reach there. There would always be a separation. Man was always sinful and and shameful and guilty. He was always the opposite to virtue and virtuousness and lack. I won't go through it all again. He was always going to be the opposite to all of those things there. And so it would have been forever unless there was an intervention, unless something changed in in the heart of man, in the plan and purpose of God. And we read that this came about from another tree, a tree that was planted at a place called Calvary. We'll go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. Now, in the early part of this chapter, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church, the Spirit-filled, talks about the difference between uh, faith and the law and how that mankind under the law is condemned. And the reason, I suppose, for that is that the law just serves to highlight the condemnation of mankind. It's, it, it just it, it forces us to think about our nature and how that we cannot be pure. The law is, is such a high standard and we, we claw our way to try and reach it and to attain to it and so on there, but we cannot be pure. We're unable to live in righteousness. And it's almost like the Lord, uh, when he gives us the law, says, now deal with that, I will look at you, you hopeless lot. Look at you trying to trying to make some attempt to, to keep all of that. You can't do it because your heart is corrupt before me there. 
But then Paul gets on to, as we, as he highlights the, the, the shortcomings of mankind, he then goes on to talk about, well, this concept that we know as the gospel, the good news, the story of Christ. And uh, we read in verse 13, the antidote to the, uh, the, the heart of man and, and the sickness in the heart of man there. And we read there in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us. The believer is redeemed. The church is a redeemed church. The saved is a redeemed, saved person. Hallelujah. The word redeemed means to be bought back. To be bought back. Now, the concept of redemption goes way back into antiquity and there are a number of uh, different uses of the word that I came across as I was looking through uh, all of this there. And I'll just go through a couple of them uh, for you if, uh, uh, if you like. Well, even if you don't like, I'm up here. You're, you've got to put up with it no matter what. Uh, but uh, the first concept that uh, is spoken of relates to battles being fought in ancient times. And it says there, after this is from a, like a, a, a Bible dictionary there, it says, after a battle, prisoners were taken. Poorer ones were sold as slaves. Important prisoners, and that is wealthy or significant or, or high-ranking prisoners, were held to ransom, was the expression that was used. And people back in their homeland would hopefully raise a required fee I suppose that depends on how well they liked the person or not, but uh, 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 that was the, the plan anyway, that they would raise the, the, the representative amount of money there and then they would pay the victors of the battle and the captive would be set free. The one who had been captured in the battle would be set free. This action was called redemption. The fee that was uh, 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 cast upon this uh, particular person and, uh, as they were brought back and redeemed uh, was called the ransom. Also, uh, this action of buying back was used uh, in a couple of other ways. A slave could purchase his freedom. In Bible days we're talking about here. And perhaps it's uh, 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 referring to a price being paid by a relative or, or by their own diligence and work. They might be able to uh, uh, purchase their freedom and so on there. Now, there was a note in this that it says, apparently this transaction was sometimes performed in a temple or a public building, and the record of it was carved into the wall. So that the person who had been redeemed would have it forever there, that they were now free. It was written there, scratched or carved into the stone or the wood or whatever there. This man is now free. This slave has been redeemed. The ransom has been paid. Now, another use for the term redemption concerns a condemned man. A man condemned to death could sometimes be set free by the paying of a redemption fee. Here, the Apostle Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us. He's paid a price. He's bought us. He's brought us out of captivity when we were captured in the battle of life by the adversary, the devil, the evil one. He's brought us from a life of slavery 
and a, a servitude to sin and corruption and the natural carnal way of our mind and so on there. And he's, he saved us and brought us back from a condemnation of death. And how did he do that? How did he pay? How, how was he able to lift the curse? As it's, it talks there about redeeming us from the curse. It says, and it goes on to say there, he was made a curse for us. That's how he did it, by becoming a curse for us. And we go on to read there, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It's talking here about the crucifixion, and there's a likeness given of the cross to a tree. He became a curse. The price was paid. Not a, a, It wasn't just some a, a possession of Christ that he, he said, oh, well, I'll give that and that will free mankind. It was Christ himself that he gave. His life. Every drop of his being was the price that he paid there. He was made a curse for us, the scripture says here. The last part of the uh, verse there, it says, it is written, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you're taking notes, you might like to have a look at that at some stage. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23, and I'll read it out to you. It says, and if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he shall be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. That's what Paul was quoting there from Deuteronomy 21. Where it says there in Deuteronomy 21, he that is hanged is accursed of God, uh, it could also be in the margin, it says in my Bible there, or is the the curse of God. Now, this is not talking about crucifixion. This is not talking about putting to death a person there. In, in Deuteronomy 21 there it says, he shall be put to death and then he shall be hung upon a tree. This was actually, uh, 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 and we know that it's not talking about crucifixion because Israel didn't use crucifixion as a, a form of death and, and punishment and, and, and capital punishment and so on there. Uh, we know that they were t- commanded to stone people to death if, uh, if somebody committed a, a, a sin worthy of that. But in extreme cases, the body of the criminal was hung upon a tree after his death. And that was for their humiliation, for their shame, for people to look at that and to even mock and to jeer and to sneer and treat with contempt the body of the person that was hung upon the tree there. And then we read here, that's how Christ was, that he was nailed to that tree. He became a curse for us. He became the the accursed for us. This is the tree that, that the Apostle Paul is talking about here that was rammed into the ground at Calvary, that Jesus Christ would be hung upon it there and he would be made a curse. For who? For us, it says. And I suppose that there's even more than that. He became a curse in the eyes of man. We know that. They mocked him. They jeered him. They spat on him. They, they treated him with such disdain and shame and shameful manner and so on and, and, and all the things that they did to him. We read in the scriptures and uh, the end part of uh, the four gospels there. Quite graphic detail that's given to us there. He became a curse. He was a curse to all of the people there. 
But worse than that, far, far worse than that from his point of view, he became a curse for us in God's eyes, in God's appreciation of it all there. Why? For us. For you and I, I believe that that part in the verse uh, uh, 13 there, uh, where it says there he was made a curse, those two words, for us, is relevant. It's important to us. For us, for me, for you. And the burning sword that kept the way of the tree of life, that kept sinful man out of the presence of God, was extinguished for the believer. The veil in the temple we read was torn apart and there was now access to God and no longer was there this separation, this gulf between uh, God and mankind there. Um, You might just have a look in um, uh, John chapter 19. John 19, I think we've got time to do this. John 19, verse that uh, often seem to come back to. John 19, verse 30. As Jesus was upon that tree, that cross, when Jesus therefore, uh, did I say verse 30? Yep. When Jesus therefore uh, uh, had uh, received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost, or he died. It is finished. The last words that Jesus spoke in his human form as he came down to this planet there, it is finished. The word there, finished, means to, uh, and I'm quoting here from Bullinger's Critical Lexicon and Concordance, all right, if you might be interested in that. You know, there's nothing I'd rather do on a cold winter's night than curl up with a copy of Bullinger's Critical Lexicon and Concordance. It's just a wonderful thing. I can't wait till they bring out the movie, personally. But uh, and 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 the word, the Greek word that's used here is teleho. Probably haven't pronounced that correctly, and so I'm not going to look over there. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll see how we go with it. Uh, it means, though, to bring about, to complete, to fulfil, to accomplish, hence to end or to perfect. That's according to Bullinger's Critical Lexicon and Concordance. Strong's Concordance says, to end, to complete, to execute, to conclude, to accomplish, to make an end, to expire, to fill up, to finish, to go over, to perform. And then it says, to discharge as a debt, to pay. There's another meaning to the word there, to pay out a debt, to pay it off. You know, if you're if you're purchasing a house, you take out a colossal loan when you're young, and then as time goes on and just a, maybe a week or two before you pass away, you pay it off. And, and that debt is then discharged, and you're freed from that debt. In fact, uh, uh, one Bible commentator said of that, the verb teleho, to finish, was used in the first and second centuries in the sense of fulfilling or paying a debt and often appeared on receipts. So when they, when it was paid, the debt was paid, they would write that word, Taliho, on it. Finished. Debt is finished. So, and this man goes on to say, Jesus' statement, it is finished, could also be interpreted as paid in full. The debt is paid in full. The debt is fully discharged. 
The ransom has been fully paid. The captive, that's us, is fully freed. Freed to the uttermost. Is, uh, and and uh, uh, the slave, we were all enslaved. Uh, and uh, uh, to sin and to corruption and the grave and so on, that we're fully liberated now by Christ. And the condemned to death, which is every one of us in our natural state, is fully pardoned through Christ. Fully pardoned. In fact, we read uh, uh, in Matthew 27, we won't turn to it, but uh, uh, this verse here, verse 30, uh, the corresponding verses in Matthew, it says, And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, that's what he cried out there, it is finished, he yielded up the ghost, and then we read, And behold, the veil in the temple was torn or rent in twain on two pieces from the top to the bottom, torn apart. You know, that veil there, I think uh, I read somewhere, was about four or five inches thick of woven material. Like it was, it was like so thick of, and it was, I think, about 60 feet high and about 30 feet wide. It was enormous. The noise it would have made as it was torn apart would have been tremendous. And uh, and people would have really known something amazing had happened there. And it says in the scripture there that we quoted there, Matthew 27, it was torn from the top to the bottom. It wasn't torn from the earth upwards. It was torn from heaven downwards. God tore it apart. And uh, and hallelujah. And it wasn't the only thing, of course, that was that was torn, the Bible says. Quote again from uh, Colossians 2, it says, The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it, this writing of accusation, out of the way, and he nailed it to his cross. That was torn apart. The condemnation against us. And then we read in Colossians 2, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He hung on that cross the condemnation against you and I, and it was torn apart. It's almost like a, it talks there about the writing of hand, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Those that uh, maybe come from a, a background where you may have had uh, contact with the officers of the law at various times may recall, uh, if you uh, choose to do so, uh, sitting there across from a, a man in uniform as he, he, well, in my day, it was uh, with a typewriter, tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, I don't know what they do now, but, uh, and that's the accusation being typed against you, the handwriting, tap, 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 against you. But Jesus took that. Every one of us had a handwriting against us, and he nailed it to the cross, that handwriting that was against us. Now we'll go back to uh, Galatians 3. In fact, the very next verse from where we were reading before, so I should have got you to put a marker there, but it's too late to worry about that, isn't it? Galatians 3. And we read there about how that uh, uh, Paul was saying there that he was made a curse, which Christ was made a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree." And here we have the completeness of it all there in verse 14. It logically follows on that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The sacrifice of Christ. The culmination of all of that, the conclusion to all of that, the bridging of the gap, the, the, the chasm between the two trees being crossed there, 
the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life is summarized for us here in the promise of the Holy Spirit being given to us. And hallelujah, we're able to, just as surely as we partook of that first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we now, through Christ, can be a partaker of the second tree there, the tree of life. Praise the Lord. It says here we can be made nigh. Elsewhere it uh, talks about that. I've, uh, I've got a quote here. Uh, yeah, in Ephesians 2, again, we won't turn to it for the sake of time there, but in Ephesians 2, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. It's not talking about a, a, a natural realm, a natural commonwealth as it were, but the, the blessing of the people of God, being alienated from that. Every one of us was in that position. And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes and were afar off are made nigh or drawn close by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both, that's the Jew and the Gentile it's referring to here at this time in Ephesians 2, has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us. We're made nigh, we're drawn close to God to the tree of life. How? Through the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know whether we have any visitors here tonight who uh, perhaps uh, be wondering, how do I know that I've received the Holy Spirit? How do I know that such a thing could be true? Well, fortunately, we're not left to make up our own rules, our own definitions. The Bible says quite plainly what happened to people when people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And hallelujah for that experience. I know my wife Lynn often says there that she rejoices in that because we're not left in any doubt then. When we have that experience, we know exactly what's happened to us because it says so in the book, in the instructions. It tells us what that means, that we're filled with the Holy Ghost. And don't let anyone tell you that that's not necessary. That that's just an extra. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and that is the culmination of Christ hanging on the tree there so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit there. Hallelujah. Somebody wrote here about that last part, about the promise, uh, the blessing, uh, was it the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ there, verse 14. And he wrote about it and said, Jesus received this cursed curse which we deserved and he did not so that we could receive the blessing of Abraham which he deserved and we did not. It would be enough if Jesus uh, simply took away the curse that we deserved. But he did far, far more than that. He gave a blessing to us that we didn't deserve. It's not just he took the curse away, it was replaced there with a blessing, the blessing of the Holy Ghost through faith. Hallelujah. We'll just finish off in uh, over a page in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Just one verse here, verse 1. Paul writing here and says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, 
and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So what do we do now? What, how do we approach life now? Now that we're received of that spirit, we stand fast. We don't go back. We don't buckle under. We keep the flag flying for the Lord in our life. We've got liberty now. We've got true liberty. Liberty from, from, from shame and from sin and from guilt and, and for, from mortality. We've been set free from those things. Just some other translations of verse five, uh, uh, chapter five, verse one there. It says, uh, in, these are more modern translations perhaps there. It says, we have freedom now because Christ has made us free. So stand strong in that freedom. Don't go back into slavery again. Another one says, freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free, exclamation mark. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Another one says, so Christ has made us free. Now you make sure you stay free. You make sure you stay free. Another translation says, Christ has set us free. This means we are really free. Now hold on to your freedom and don't ever become slaves to the law again. Don't ever go back. Don't ever do that. Just uh, in finishing, uh, I remember reading about um, uh, when uh, after the Civil War in the United States of America, when slavery was abolished and uh, uh uh, under the presidency of Lincoln, of course, uh, who was, it was a turbulent time. And, uh, he sent out government agents throughout all, particularly of the South, uh, to all of the plantations and properties so that they might inform the slaves that they were now free and also inform the slaveholders that they had to let those slaves go. Now that caused a, quite a, uh, a kerfuffle, I think is the word. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, people were, were outraged by it. If they owned slaves, their, their labor, their free labor was going. And so, uh, uh, well, I, I, I read uh, uh, somewhere about a, a particular instance where uh, this government agent arrived at this plantation and he began, he read out the proclamation of emancipation, which spoke of the freedom of all the slaves and how that they could now go free. And the owner of the plantation began to argue with him. Began to say, that's not right. That's not so. And uh, there was one particular man, a slave there, and uh, he said, you've got to remain a slave to me. You've got to. And this uh, man just kept reading out this proclamation about how that they were now free, that he didn't have to remain a slave. And at the end of it all, this slave turned to uh, the, the government agent and he said, are you saying, sir, that I am now free to go? And the agent said, yes, the President of the United States says you are now free to go. And he turned to his uh, former owner, the plantation owner, and said, in that case, sir, I bid thee farewell. And that's what we can do to the things that beset us. That's what we can say to the one who would seek to, to, to bind us. The devil, that old sin sower, I think I remember hearing somewhere uh, before we can say to him, I bid thee farewell. All the people said, Amen. Mm-hmm.